As I begin today, I just want to remind us that we have been going through the um, studies on the kingdom of God. We've investigated the big picture of the, what the kingdom means a number of weeks ago. And just looking at the overall scope of it and, and what it means, etc. And last week we looked at the passages where Jesus described identifying traits of someone who is a part of the kingdom of God. We're just going to go through those very quickly. Uh, the first one is uh, righteousness apart from self. And what that really means is, is that we're blameless through Christ's payment for our sin. We, 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 we can't come to God with our own goodness and say, here I am. Because that's not going to cut it. That's not going to make it. That is why God sent his son to die for our sins. The second one is divine determination. Um, Kind of a little bit of a fancy way of saying that we are to desire to know and do God's will, not be all about our own. It's what he desires for our life that then comes first. That's one of the traits that we have of being in God's kingdom. Also, he talked about... Uh, Jesus talked about having the faith of a child, uh, of, of just a very simple faith, simple trust in God for salvation and for daily living. In other words, once we've committed our life to Jesus Christ, once we've trusted him as our Savior, we trust him with the rest of our life too, okay? And then the last one is sufficiency beyond self. That simply means is we have a dependence upon God and the Holy Spirit's, Spirit's guidance while fulfilling our responsibilities. All right. So this doesn't mean, okay, I'll just, you know, kind of sit back and wait for God to move me, right? Uh, he'll animate me somehow and I'll do something. No. We go about doing his will, we go about being obedient. But we do it in his strength. We understand that we, we really aren't sufficient on our own. Yeah, this might be distracting somebody. I'll let my little friend go here. <laughs> Anybody else see that? Yes. High eight. Anyway, so, sorry. <laughs> Some of you get that later. Okay. So, <laughs> oh, boy. I just looked up. I'm like, hey, uh, little friend. Uh, all right. So let's get back here. To further emphasize the nature of Jesus' kingdom regarding the kingdom, the Lexham Bible Dictionary says, Jesus does not define the kingdom of God. He describes it only with parables. And we even read that in our text today. So as he's talking about the kingdoms, many times he's using this idea of parables. He's he's, he's communicating in that way. So we've already established in our previous studies that the kingdom of God is made up of all believers from all time. Old Testament people of faith looked forward to the Messiah, to Christ's coming. They looked forward to him in faith, believing what God said. Then God's chosen, God's chosen one, they trusted in him, and those who came after Christ looked back in faith to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So that's what we're doing now. We're looking back at something that's already been accomplished, and we respond in faith to what he did back then for us. We also need to keep in mind, as we go through this study, uh, the language of a parable. For some of you, this might be the first time you've ever heard this word. A parable literally means laying side by side. Okay, It's taking two things and putting them side by side. 
So here is a simple working definition of a parable. It's not a complete definition, but I'm going to give you something that at least you can kind of hang your hat on a little bit here. A parable is an often simple, made-up story that is compared to a spiritual or moral principle to help the hearer better understand that principle. Okay? So it's a story told that's really talking about the subject that the teller wants to make more clear. All right? The parables we'll be looking at today are stories or examples that use something else to represent the kingdom of God in order to illustrate or explain the kingdom. Parables can give general descriptions of the kingdom or they can highlight specific aspects of the kingdom of God. For example, I could make a general description. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Right? You've probably heard that before. Or I could be more specific. Life is like a Snickers bar. Part of it is sweet. Part of it's kind of sticky. And you're going to come across some nuts. Okay? This is what life is all about. So as we move forward, I want us to see um, the kingdom is like. But before we get to that, I do have one more thing to look at. And that is that the kingdom is central. The kingdom is central. In our past studies, we've already recognized that the kingdom of God is the central theme of Scripture. That is what God was developing in the Old Testament, looking forward to Jesus. And now we see that it is now all about Jesus until he comes back, until the kingdom is fully completed. All right? So that is, again, what we have established so far as far as our study is concerned. Matthew's gospel gives us a summary of Christ's ministry. So I want to have us read that. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, that was the Jewish place of worship, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, what is gospel? Good news. So Jesus went about preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So, so and by the way, that healing was really just to validate the message that he was giving. Amen. That's exactly what Jesus said. The, all that was about. It was always pointing back to the message of who he was, who he is. All right? It was also carried on by those who followed after Jesus. Acts 20, I'm sorry, Acts 2, 30, and then verses 34 through 36 say this. Therefore, and by the way, this goes back to um, uh, Peter's great sermon as, as really the church was just beginning. And what I have highlighted here are aspects of the kingdom. Therefore, David, being a prophet, he's in the middle of a sermon here, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Now, we're going to pause just for a minute here. Again, we might have some folks who you're not with us, you know, haven't been with us for all this. David was this great king of Israel, and God said, you're going to have a descendant after you. This was part of that plan that I was telling you about. That was that promise. And, and, and this, this ruler is going to rule forever. And, and also there are many prophets talked about salvation for God's people coming from him. Okay. And so here's David again talking about this. It says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. 
So this is God the Father talking to God the Son, saying, sit at my right hand, which was that place of honor, right? Till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. All right? So he's the chosen one, but he's the chosen one to be the Lord, to be the ruler, to be the master of everything and everyone. As we move on through the book of Acts, it says here, but when they believed in Acts 8.12, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, Jesus, both men and women were baptized. Notice they believed, then they were baptized, right? But the point here is, he was preaching, he was proclaiming the kingdom. What was Jesus proclaiming? The kingdom. What did Peter proclaim? The king, the kingdom, right? And then we move on. Acts 19.8, and Paul went into the synagogue. Again, that's that Jewish place of worship. Him being a Jew, there was, there was a, an interactive period many times. And it said, and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So what was Paul's message? <laughs> the kingdom of God. Goes on, chapter 20, verse 23. So when they had appointed Paul a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he ex- ex- explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. We, we looked at the coming Christ as we were back in the Old Testament, looking forward, and we looked at the law and we looked at the prophets. We looked at really the whole Old Testament pieces of it, moving forward to Christ's coming. Again, there's Paul talking about the kingdom of God. And then the latter part of that chapter in a different setting, verses 30 and 31 of Acts 28, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. God's kingdom is his ultimate plan for eternity. It really is synonymous with the gospel, the good news of Christ, the plan of salvation, whatever you want to call it. It's all about who Jesus is and our relationship with him. We must recognize that the primary purpose of God's plan, however, is to bring him glory. It's God's primary purpose for his plan to bring him glory. Then the primary purpose, if if that's the case, then it's not our salvation. Now, don't get scared. Right? Hang on a minute, but let that sink in. If his primary purpose is his glory, the primary purpose is not our salvation. Let me say this another way. Those who make up the kingdom are not the focal point of the kingdom. The focus is on the king. With that said, much attention is certainly given to those who the king has brought into the kingdom, right? Because you don't have a kingdom without something to king over, right? Think about it this way. When we think of our country and we think of the world in general, 
we think of our president, right? When you think of any other country, you think of the head of state representing the people. But it's the head of state that really is where the focal point is. It's no different here with the Lord. And by the way, this is even more appropriate. <laughs> okay. So now we move forward here and look into what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a farmer spreading seed. Now we're going to spend a little bit larger time on this passage simply because it's a larger part of the, the, the chapter that we're going to be looking at. And I know that we've read it, but I want to still look through a few things that we're talking about here. Uh, so uh, turn with me back to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to read again verses 3 through 9, just to refresh our memory here. 13, 3 through 9. So he has this group, this very large group of people that have gathered to him. He gets in a boat, goes out into the water. By the way, that was really smart because he can then project out over the water and boom, his voice hits a whole bunch of people nice and loud, right? So that's what he's doing here. So verse 3, it says, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, now, I need to stop for a second. What's a parable? Laying two things side by side. So we have this, this parable of, of the, the farmer all right, so we've got this farmer aspect laying side by side with the kingdom. All right, so here we go. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and, and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up and they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold and some sixty and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this parable is also a little bit unique, this particular one. After Jesus spoke the parable, the disciples asked him why he was speaking this parable. And so uh, part of his answer revealed his purpose and so now we're going to read that section by the way i'm going to just tell you jesus interprets this as we said he explains it so there's no reason to stop here and explain through this because jesus is going to and he's a better explainer than i am i'm going to lead us along a little bit but we're, we're going to wait for what he has to say but starting then in verse 10 it says, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But he who, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will not hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will not see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the Lord first explains to them that his followers have been given the ability to understand the parable. 
they, they've been given some insight into the word of God. There's a connection that is made because of that. In other words, they can understand Christ's message and the others can't. This fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, which foretold that the people would hear but not understand. There's a similar message that Ezekiel gives where he adds that the people don't understand because they're rebellious. All right, That's really the key to all of that. And that's, that's actually what the parable of the soils of the sower really tells us. Another reason this parable is different than most is that Jesus explains the meaning of the parable to his disciples. There's other ones that we read. There wasn't a follow-up explanation. They were just standalone. But this one here, Jesus feels compelled to explain more to them. I want to read you that explanation, and then we're going to go through that. Starting in verse 19. It says, When anyone hears the word of, of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what's sown in the heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. I didn't give you that slide, but you got it now, so there we go. We're going to move on. All right. Uh, so l let me explain through this uh, for, for a little bit here, okay? First off, the seed is the word of the kingdom, right? That is what is being sown. So the seed in the parallel is the word of the kingdom. It's really the word of God. The sower is the Lord. The sower is God. The soil represents different people. And that's what we're going to be going through primarily. So we have... Four things that we're going to be looking at, and all of them relate back to the different type of people, but also they're pictured as different soils. So we good so far? Everybody got that? Soils are people. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right. So we have the wayside. Seed that fell on the path or hard-packed ground. This is simply put, you, when you went out to farm in that day, you had a... a bag of sorts and you simply dipped in and you spread the seed out by hand all right we didn't have these fancy you know cedars where you just drive right onto a field and it punctures the ground and puts the seeds in for you you just spread them out there well as the seed is falling some of it is falling down on the pathway in between the fields where they're sowing most of the time, these pathways were, were basically what we would call sidewalks. It's the different ways that people got from place to place. And it was also the way that they were able to get around their field. Well, it was packed down tight. And so the seed had no way to actually penetrate that hard soil, right? So this represents a completely unreceptive heart of someone who wants nothing to do with God's word. Someone who wants nothing to do with the gospel. 
Now, Jesus adds that the enemy, the evil one, Satan, removes that very seed of the word from someone who doesn't receive it. So it's really kind of a double whammy, isn't it? Now, this is just my opinion, but I believe the majority of people in the world, even deeply spiritual people, are really unreceptive to Christ and his kingdom. It's offensive to them. He's offensive to them. They don't want to follow him. They're willing to be spiritual, but not bow to the king. Big difference. Then we have the shallow soil. Uh, Rocky is, is what the scriptures tell us. For some... There is an initial draw or interest, possibly even an excitement for the word of God. But the interest soon withers and dies altogether. Now, we're told here that that comes because there's resistance to that person, right? They start talking about the things of the Lord and, and people are like, what's wrong with you? And so there's this persecution that takes place and they're like, I'm out. I mean, that, that's really what we're talking about. So let's go back to the soils for a minute to help us understand this. There's two ways that we can look at rocky soil. One is there's rocks and dirt together, okay? And so as the sower is throwing the seed out, some might blow over to this rocky area. You see the plants come up a little bit, but there's not enough there, and it withers and dies, okay? The other aspect is, and we have this in our country too, but, but in, in Israel, there are places where there's, there's a rock underneath just a very thin layer of soil, and you might not know that, right? But as you're throwing the seed out, it lands in these areas. The seed goes down into the ground. The roots start to form, but there's no place for the roots to go. So once the plant gets to a certain height, it outgrows its ability to feed itself and it dies. So that's the likening to someone who hears it, kind of receives it at first, but then things get tough and they say, mm, no. I'm done. It withers away. All right? Now, we're going to explain more of this, but just, just keep that in mind, okay? Then we go to what I'm calling the thorn-infested soil. Jesus explains that the third soil represents those who have initial interest, possibly even for a long time. This could be someone who might even seem religious or even Christian. The picture is that the seed is sown on ground where thorn bushes were removed from the land but only on the surface. They didn't get the roots out. The roots remained. Thorns sprung up earlier and faster than the crop and choked the crop as it started to, to come up. As the seed started to grow, the thorny stuff had an advantage. It was growing first, and it choked the seed that was coming up. Uh, you know, Some of you know my parents have a garden. Last year, I saw a... Uh, pepper plant that had one of those viney things that morning glory or whatever that grows in your garden and it had completely wrapped itself around it and it just choked it off now I don't know why my parents didn't get out there and you know <laughs> take care of those weeds but they're not here this morning are they bonus <laughs> no no just, <laughs> can talk about it. no anyway so so you get the idea here though I mean it just, it killed the plant right so Jesus explained that this represents those who are overwhelmed by either the cares of this world or fooled into going after 
what we can gain from this life. Now, by the way, the cares of this world, we might kind of, you know, fault, fault back on that and say, that, that's, that's, you know, concerns. That's, you know, oh, no, it, it's, it's just talking about doing life. Where, where doing life or getting ahead are more important than what our eternal destiny is. Does that fit anybody in our world today? So what happens is the cares of this world grow up and they choke off any activity that the word had in that person's heart. And then that brings us to the good soil. Now there are two key words here. One is good that Jesus uses and the other one is fruit. Good soil represents a person who receives God's word and allows the word to grow. Right? There's something that happens in their life. Now, this is, this is all Jesus speaking from a human perspective. Okay? We know that God does a work in someone's life, but we also know that, that you know, we respond too. Okay? So what sets this last soil apart from the others is what we would call fruitfulness. Fruit is the spiritual growth we see from the word of God. The story is from the farmer's perspective, so only a plant that actually produces fruit accounts for anything. You think about it. Maggie and I were just driving from, from uh, uh, Scotty's graduation party, and, and we're driving by you know, alfalfa fields and winter wheat fields. Can you imagine a farmer going out there, right? And I know I'm being stereotypical here, but he you know, smacks his suspenders, right, and looks out there and says, look at this, look at this wonderful field of wheat, and there's not one head on the grain. You think he's happy? No, to him it's just a waste of time. A waste of money. It's worthless. When he puts that seed in the ground, he expects a return. He expects something to take place as a result. And that's what we're talking about with the good soil. I also want you to notice that the amount of the production can be different. We're different. God builds us differently. We have different opportunities. Some will produce more than others. But there will be outward signs of what God has done on the inside of a person who is part of the kingdom, Amen. who is a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's the parable of the soils. We're going to move ahead now to the parable, to the story of the leaven and a batch of dough. Matthew 13, gives us this part of the story. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, this is a terrible spot to do this, but I did forget to say this. We skipped some of the parables. We're going to look at most of those next week. There's a little bit of a little bit different nature to them, and we'll look at those next week. This week, we're looking at these. These are really primarily dealing with what we could call the present, like what's happening right now, right? So the parable of the kingdom, uh, of, the kingdom of heaven is, I'm sorry, of the leaven he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Here the message is short, simple, but profound. The kingdom, which we know is also the gospel, the message of who Jesus is, and all who are part of it, the kingdom is compared to a bit of leaven put into a fresh batch of dough. 
Three measures of flour were a typical amount for a batch of bread. Now, by the way, this wasn't three cups, right? This was a lot of dough that they were going to make because it took a lot of time and effort to make bread back then. We didn't, they didn't just pull it off of the shelf in a, in, in a plastic wrapper, all right? So it, it, there was a big batch here. So the baker inserted a small amount of dough reserved from the previous batch, and that contained the leaven that then was put into the fresh dough. All right? So imagine this. Here's, you know, bread from two days ago. I baked all that, but before I bake it all, I pinch a piece off that has already had the rising process taking place. I reserve that. Now I'm making my fresh stuff. Well, where am I going to get my leaven? Well, right here. Okay, so then I insert that, and over time, what happens? That leaven spreads throughout the rest of that dough. It rises, and now they have a fresh batch of dough that's ready to put into the oven. This illustrates that the kingdom would slowly spread until its work was completed. Person to person, generation after generation. God's kingdom was just going to continue to grow. Now, we're going to consider a couple of short parables together now. They're very similar, different stories, but similar uh, uh, purposes behind the telling of them. And these have to do with finding treasure. I, I don't know about you, but was, treasure hunt, that's kind of fun, right? So we're going to see what this treasure is all about. The kingdom of God is like finding treasure. The first one is specifically stated as hidden treasure. Now, I got a little picture of hidden treasure here. Um, this is uh, what's pictured here is part of a $10 million treasure that a California family found buried in various parts of their yard. Yeah. Say, <laughs> like, why doesn't they have any? But, but I mean, I'm, I'm talking about like gold and stuff, but mostly gold. And it was just buried in old cans and different things like that. And, it, and some of it was like Russian gold and different things like that because they traded, you know, in California. And so they found all of this. It was $10 million, right? So now let's look at what the scriptures say. And again, Matthew 13, 44, we already read this. But again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, that other family didn't have to buy the field, right? It was theirs. But this man, he finds something that was once hidden. And he says, okay, I don't want anybody else finding it. He hides it again. And then he goes and buys the field that that treasure is in. Right. I want us to remind us of a couple of things here. The outside details do not necessarily matter to a parable or the purpose of telling it. The example, some examples that we can draw even from this is we can say, well, who does the treasure belong to? That's not relevant. Is the land ready already for sale? Or did he go and make an offer? Doesn't matter. Is it right to buy the land without telling the owner about the treasure first? That's not the moral of the story. <laughs> He's just simply stating a made-up story that comes alongside of a truth. And sometimes we focus on these side features and that results in some really wacky and sometimes dangerous interpretations. Okay? 
This one isn't necessarily dangerous, but if we go back to the parable of the leaven, remember how it said that there were three measures of flour? There are authors that say that represents the Trinity. And it's like, how? Why? In that story, right? So you can start to really have a taffy pull, right? You know, stretch, you know, make some of you guys remember who Gumby is, right? Where you start stretching scripture and we miss what the simple message that Jesus is actually trying to give us here. All right? So we're going to stick to the simple message. Don't worry about the details, meaning the details that aren't there. Okay? So we've talked about this hidden treasure. Now we're going to talk about an expensive pearl. An expensive pearl. Next to the verse that I'm going to read in just a moment is actually a pearl of great price, a pearl of exceptional value. It's called the big pink pearl. I think they could have come up with something better than that, but it, that's what it is. It was discovered off the coast of California. It's an abalone pearl, right? One of the largest that's ever been found, and it's worth about, just like the other treasure, about $10 million. So it's very unique. It's very large and Someone found it out in the ocean. Go figure. So now let's look at the scriptures here, just to kind of think about this pearl of great price, right? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In this parable, Jesus compares the kingdom to an expensive pearl. That's pretty obvious. These two parables shift the focus from the kingdom itself to a person's discovery of the kingdom. Did you notice that? It's their discovery of the kingdom that we're now talking about. Both items of great, great worth obviously represent the kingdom of God, which then, because of what we've already talked about, represent Christ himself represent knowing him and being in his family. Both the treasure and the pearl are worth everything the person has in order to require, acquire them. Did you see that? In both passages, everything that person had, they were willing to give up so that they could have the treasure. Either the hidden treasure, the field, or the pearl. But the idea is that the worth of what was acquired is much greater than what was given up. I mean, only a foolish person would take something that is of greater value and purchase something, so to speak, that's worth less, right? I may have told you a story before. Uh, I'm, I'm going to chalk this up to being very young. But when I was a little kid, I had a lemonade stand. And some of the older boys in the neighborhood thought, um, well, I didn't know it at the time, but they thought, hey, we can cash in. So what they told, them, they told me was, they said, we'll help you with your lemonade stand. I'm this little naive kid. I'm like, okay, sure. And, they, and so what they did was is they biked around right in front of my house Lemonade, lemonade, lemonade. Then they stopped and they said, okay, you got to pay us now. They were a lot bigger than me. It was a shakedown. Okay. The problem was, right, 
they gave me a service that was worthless and I paid for it. You see where I'm going? We don't normally do that. When we know better, we don't do that. A couple of the things. The one man seemed to have stumbled upon his treasure. Did you notice that? It just says, he's out in the field, he finds treasure. <laughs> look at this, right? No, don't look at this. I'm going to hide this, right? Then he goes and he buys the field. When he buys the field, he gets what? The treasure that's contained in it, right? But the pearls, but pearls were the other man's business. That's what he was all about. He dealt in pearls. He was, you know, kind of like a jeweler, only specializing in pearls. He would have seen all kinds of pearls until he sees this exceptional pearl. And what does he say? Oh, man, <laughs> I got to have that one. And he sells everything else that he has to get that one pearl. Keep those thoughts for a little bit. I want to share one more thing. We're going to change perspectives yet again. The kingdom of heaven is like a householder sharing his treasures. Verses 51 and 52 of the same chapter, verse 13, chapter 13 says this, Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. He's, he's talking to his disciples. Remember, he's talked to the crowd and he said, they're not all going to get it, right? But he's talking to his disciples. He says, you guys get it. And there's a reason why, because they were in the kingdom. So then he says this, Therefore, okay, you guys see you get this. Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So again, we have a different perspective here, but the kingdom doesn't change. Do you notice that? We're never redefining the kingdom. We're defining how we're looking at it. Jesus is speaking in parables to teach different aspects of the kingdom. This parable refers to a homeowner, basically. Notice that the homeowner is also compared to a scribe. That is the parable. That's that laying side by side. The word scribe is almost always the legalist partners of the Pharisees. The scribes both interpreted and instructed the law. That was their job. That's what they did all the time. Okay? That was their full-time job. So as we're talking about a scribe, we're talking about a teacher. But here Jesus uses the term to mean more of the general idea of a scribe, not the office of a scribe. So what he's saying is a teacher. So let's kind of read the passage that way. We'll start with a therefore. Therefore, every teacher instructed concerning or, or who has been educated in the kingdom of heaven is like a householder. That makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, so as we're approaching it that way, uh, sorry, let me, got lost my thought just for a second here. What we see here is, is that the scribe, if he's going to teach, he has to be educated. This is not a formal education. This is being informed. This is knowing what you're going to be teaching about. And so this person knows the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Those are interchangeable terms. So that's where we're at. 
So as a homeowner, Jesus is saying that this man is a kingdom resident. He owns a home. Like a homeowner, he shows what he has, both new and old. This knowledgeable instructor of the kingdom shares what he knows. That's part of that whole teaching process. That's the picture, okay? Um, Just to kind of illustrate this a little bit, my wife and I, we just bought a home about a year and a half ago, right? Moved back into the area, bought a house. Um, We brought a lot of junk with us, but we are homeowners, And we could take our home and we could show you, hey, this is Maggie's grandfather's secretarial, right? That's an old thing. Or we could say, hey, we just picked this up the other day and we stuck it on the wall, right? That's a new thing. We could share with you the things that we have in our home that are both old and new. So since the homeowner is a direct reference to the teacher, who is first a student of the kingdom, I believe that Jesus is saying that we will share what we have, what we have learned both recently and what we've acquired over the years. A student of the kingdom should be someone who is able to teach about the kingdom. Not formally trained and not necessarily formally teaching. Could be. But you're able to communicate what the kingdom is about. So in just a few words, Jesus is teaching two important truths as he encouraged them to share the word. To share the truth about the kingdom. To share the good news. First of all, we need to avoid learning just up to a point And then only relying on our past knowledge. That's not good. Also, we shouldn't get caught up in what we are recently learning to where we're kind of obsessed with the new and the now and forget what we've banked already. The result will be a balanced approach to sharing truth based upon the needs of the hearer. Doesn't that make sense? If I'm going to turn around, I'm going to teach something is not for my benefit. Let me now espouse all the things that I know for my benefit up here. What's I can do for you? I I was a really good student. It only took me what five years to get through college. I'm not joking, right? So I'm a slow learner, but I learned a lot. I can get up here and I can tell you all kinds of little itty-bitty facts and things and stuff, things that I had to have on tests and things, things I don't necessarily reference a lot now. But I am not the smartest person in the room. You know, if other people get up here and, and do a lot better job than me, but there's a certain point where it's like, what, is, what does that benefit? Right? But there's some old stuff and there's some new stuff there's some experiences that we have. There's some interaction. We have the word of God. There's some things that we're learning that we want to be able to share. That's what all of us should be about in the kingdom of God. So we've looked at the kingdom in several different ways from several different aspects. But notice, again, this is really all kind of current. It's present tense type of stuff. And so as we kind of conclude this, as we bring this together, I want us to think about several things. 
There is one key element that we must take away from today's study. It is how Jesus described the nature of the kingdom. He describes looking, his description looks nothing like what the people expected. They envisioned a powerful leader who would conquer Israel's enemies, restore the kingdom, and eventually rule the world. Now, they were partially right. There will be a day when Jesus rules everything and everyone. He really does now, but he has allowed right people to do their own thing to a degree on earth. But that's not the way it is. The kingdom is described as something, by Jesus, by the way, as something common or small, subtle, and or hidden. Think of it. Seed planted in good soil. Just as little seeds. Planted as something very common. Earth. Yeast in dough. How much more basic can you get? But what do we know about yeast when you put it into dough that doesn't have it yet it's going to spread into it and it's going to cause it to rise hidden treasure a small treasure in a big field a valuable pearl something this man was seeking out he was looking and then he found it but just just a little pearl very valuable very small Yet these illustrations describe the kingdom of God as either of great value or something that grows. Right? Please know today that if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, you do not possess the treasure that is greater than your own life. Just pure and simple. Following Christ will require you to give up your life. Did I say that you're going to die? There's plenty of people here. We're all living and breathing. We're worshiping God today. We're, we're not dead. But Jesus said that we had to die to ourselves. Amen. That goes back to the characteristics, the traits of people who are in the kingdom. We're doing God's will, not our own. That doesn't mean we don't have any freedoms, but it means that we place ourselves under the authority of the Lord. But I want you to know that you will receive a new life in Christ that is greater than all the parts of your whole life put together now. When you follow Christ, you will receive a life that is for eternity. Now this may be new to you this morning. Um, It was new to the people that heard it when Jesus spoke it. There was a point in time when it was new to me. Just to briefly give you my testimony, I received Christ when I was going into sixth grade. And I, and I say it like that because in our church, you, you know, they encourage you to walk an aisle, right? To, to walk forward and, and say, tell, tell the person up front that you needed to know Jesus as your Savior. Well, I had already learned what the Bible said about Jesus. And I'm sure that I believed before that. But you know, I, I'm, I'm standing up for you now. I used to be really shy. And I was scared to death to walk up in front of people. I just flat out was. So I didn't want to go forward. You know what I'm saying? But the bottom line is, I already knew who Jesus was. But my struggle was that I knew 
if I followed Christ with my life, I couldn't live my life the way I wanted to, potentially, right? Because I knew what the Bible said. I knew that he was going to, you know, sixth grade, fifth grade language, he was going to be the boss. <laughs> he had standards. He had things he wanted me to do. Now, I knew that I couldn't try to live out those standards before I was forgiven of my sins. That wasn't going to do me any good. But I knew that if I followed him, that if I trusted him for who he was and I believed on him and I said, you know, yes, you're my savior, then my life was going to be different. Now, I'll also tell you this. There was something inside of me that said, mm, maybe I don't want it to be different. Folks, listen, I was in sixth grade. What does a sixth grader know? No offense. Okay. But I already had plans. I had things I wanted to do. What if the plan that Jesus had for me wasn't the plan that I had for me? Now fast forward to somebody who's 45, who doesn't know Jesus. And now you tell that person, you follow him, you got to give up everything. Now understand, we say that salvation is a free gift, and it is. It's a completely free gift. But these illustrations that Jesus gave us tell us this, that you got to be all in. It can't be like the soils. Oh, this is wonderful. I feel good now. And then go off and do your own thing. <laughs> right? The cares of this world choking all that off. No. We're about doing something as a result of being his child. So if you are in the kingdom of God today as one who has trusted Christ, then you will be about producing good works. It might be different than the person next to you. That's probably okay, but you need to be about doing that. Because a seed was planted and a seed grew. And the expectation is there's going to be return on that. If you say that you are a follower of Christ today and you don't see spiritual production, that is a possible, maybe even a probable indication that you are not a follower of Christ. That's the message that Jesus is giving here, right? Because when we think about those three soils, here's the bottom line. The first soil... What does it produce? That first seed, nothing. The second plant that pops up with the rocks around it or underneath it, what does that produce? Nothing. What about the third one? It shot up. There was growth. It's not the scale that Jesus is using in this passage. The scriptures told us very clearly here it was unfruitful. There was nothing to show for it. 
Those three soils represent three types of people, their response to the gospel, and they don't know Jesus. Someone who knows Christ does something with the message of Christ. They respond to the will of God in obedience, and there's something to show for their faith. Now, lastly, if you are part of the kingdom, be a continual learner and a sharer of what you know about the kingdom of God. Be that householder, that resident, right? That shows what you have, both old and new. And in all of this, folks, understand, I mean, come on. Just be honest with me this far. Am I telling you anything different? Am I explaining differently than what Jesus said? No. I'm being truthful with you. So let me just ask you, be truthful with yourself and be truthful with the Lord and ask yourself, do I know him? Am I a part of the kingdom? Have I responded to the good news of Jesus? And it just might be that you're not even sure what that means. We're happy to share that with you. All right? Happy to share that with you. But if you have heard the message, you don't have to necessarily remain in one of those soil categories, so to speak, right? If you respond. Again, this is all looking at it as Jesus is looking at it from the human perspective from what happens when the seed is planted. So let me encourage you to respond to what Christ did for us. He came to this earth as God the Son, lived a perfect sinless life, gave his life for those who would be in his kingdom, gave it up, died, sacrificed his life to pay for our sins that we committed against his father, that we committed against him, and erase them as we place our confidence, as we place our trust in him. He died, he was buried, and three days later he rose again because he had victory over death. Death was weaker than Christ. Jesus was stronger than death itself. And now he lives forever. And if we trust in him, he promises us that we will live forever. Not, not physically yet, right? This, this life will end unless he comes back for us. But the scriptures tell us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then one day our bodies are going to catch up to us when Christ resurrects everyone. I know that's a little complicated there, but this is bonus material. But the point is this. We need to respond. And the simple message that Jesus is the most precious, greatest, most valuable thing that we could ever have. In the person of Christ, we can't put a price tag on it. And so we say no to ourselves. We have a change of heart and mind. 
and we trust him. We, we just, just like a child, we just trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that childlike faith, as we mentioned earlier in the message, is where we respond to you in faith as our Savior, but it's also responding to you in faith in every step that we take as your follower. So Lord, I pray that as you went about speaking, preaching, proclaiming the kingdom, as your followers took that message and did the same thing, and now as we're just simply doing that today, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, and maybe they thought they did today and now they know they don't. Lord, we're not trying to have people doubt their walk with you, but it's just simply a matter of looking at our fruit, of looking at what we really believe and looking at how we've approached you. And the, the seed in the soils tells us very clearly, Lord, how we're to come to you. So I pray, Father, that if there's some people who have some questions about that today, that you would work in their lives. Lord, if we are in the kingdom, we know that we are your follower. We know that we have placed that faith in you, that you died for us and that you loved us. Lord, I pray that we will continue to get rid of that self. Not losing who we are, but finding who we are in Jesus. And that we truly would respond in faith and live for you. Heavenly Father, sometimes we make it so complicated. We ask that you'll really speak to us this morning about the simplicity of that. It's not a 10-year plan. It's making a determination. It's, it's having our will align with yours, and it's making that next decision correctly. And it's seeking out ways to produce good fruit. We thank you for that seed that was planted, the word of God. It's being planted today, Lord. And I pray that it will bring much fruit, that we will glorify you with our lives, both together as a church and as individuals. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.